We are starting, though, with a new policy. It's been in place for a couple of days now. And the mandatory minimum charge for a paper bag will be 15 cents, a dollar for a reusable bag and 25 cents for a single-use cup. That was Global News reporter Nithu Garcha talking about the new fees that are in place when it comes to paper cups, reusable bags, and the now ban on plastic bags in the city of Vancouver. And joining us to talk more about this is Sarah Kirby Young, a Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Happy 2022. Happy 2020 to you as well. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this? I know this was a policy that was supposed to come into place a year ago. It was postponed because of the pandemic. So why now? Yeah, so it was uh, slated to come into effect on January 1st, 2021. And in the pandemic, with all of the uncertainty um, for everybody, just in terms of COVID protocol and you know what was safe um, from a sort of health and safety perspective, as well as the uncertainty for businesses, council decided to delay it by a year. Um, but we're still very committed to working um, on our climate initiatives and promoting sustainable practices. And so I think we're at the point now we know a lot more about COVID and the Center for Disease Control and Vancouver Coastal Health have certified that reusable bags and reusable cups are safe to use. Um, and so we wanted to move forward with the environmental initiative now. Doesn't it cause people to be more in person, though, even if you're talking about something like ordering a coffee or, or a beverage to go, if you're doing it on an app, but you can't do that if you're then showing up and you want to do it with a reusable cup? Yeah, it's it does certainly. Um, I mean, I think for coffee, if you're talking about that takeout coffee, it's, you know, are people going to stay and have a cup of coffee um, or are they going to take it to go? And in, in that case, then you want to do it in your own cup. I think businesses will start to adapt that part of what the fees are for to help them with software updates and adapt practices Um, and we are on day three obviously now just starting out Um, but uh, it's also nice you know when we get back to real life to sit down and have a cup of coffee I remember traveling to different places in the world and people were really surprised to hear it when you asked for a cup of coffee to go they sort of gave you that look right Um, and said why wouldn't you sit down and enjoy it so maybe like the pandemic this will cause us occasionally to slow down and just enjoy that cup of coffee. Right. But but I'm, I mean, and I agree with you, and I think everybody would love to, to have that and to have the time to do that. But as it is now, when, when people, I think, are even more uh, aware of the Omicron variant and aware of being around other people in enclosed spaces, there, there would still be that move to order something on an app, go in, grab it and leave. Rather than if you even if you wanted to take your reusable cup, you would then have to go into this cafe, pass your cup to a person in the cafe, have it filled and go about it that way. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, procedures are, are progressing and adapting all the time. That's why there's one thing called the contactless coffee pr- um, procedure, which is used around the world by coffee shops. And there's different ways to do it where you take off the lid and you put your cup down on, on a tray and hand it to the barista. They're able to pour the drink in without touching the cup and hand it back to you. And yes, certainly that's an in-person service. But I think you'll see more adaptation as we move forward. Uh, we've heard from some uh, of those uh, in in the plastic the industries uh, in plastics uh, more in favor of that saying instead of an all-out ban a better approach is a more circular recycling program or a way to make plastics to make uh, these types of uh, products part of the circular recycling model is there is there not an initiative to do that or an appetite to do that um, well, I think the federal government is also looking at a ban nationwide um, in terms of plastics. And so I think there's been a lot of research, a lot of science into this. Um, a lot of sort of the circular use is dependent upon the actual recycling facilities that are available. And it can be extremely costly 
um, to go into those and build them up. And so I think, you know, if you look at the science behind um, Vancouver and implementing its own ban and now the federal government looking to do this across Canada, um, and we're seeing huge support for it. I think the poll that was done by Research & Co. that came out just at the beginning of this year, a couple of days ago, said that 82% of British Columbians do support banning single-use plastics. And I think a lot of people would say, yeah, that number sounds reasonable and people are in support of that. But then when you look at some of the reusable bags, there's not a lot of evidence that those bags or or the evidence shows you'd have to use them something like, you know, 170,000 times to make them carbon neutral. So is there a better solution? Well, I think there's different types of bags available. I've got quite a few cloth ones myself. I use those. They're sturdy. I like them. Um, you know, I've got ones with different logos from some of my favorite neighborhoods around town, like I love Chinatown and others. Um, so you don't always have to go with the plastic alternative. You can look at cloth as well. Uh, you talked about a, a federal ban or a federal initiative on this. What about more of a regional approach in that? How does it stand now with Vancouver taking this step? But how do you, if somebody doesn't have those bags or they just find it too much of a hassle, maybe you've gone grocery shopping and you forgot your bags, you don't want to pay for paper. What's what's to stop people then from, from especially those who live maybe close to Burnaby or close to some other areas, from just shopping in other parts of Metro Vancouver? Um, well, certainly it might happen. I think people tend to do their daily needs close to home. And this, um, you know, for, you mentioned things like groceries and that, people will go for convenience as well. Um, if you're going to drive a little bit extra and then you're going to burn time and gas to do that versus just kind of trying to remember. This is about forming habits, right, in terms of trying to remember to bring your bag with you. Um, and if you have to purchase one additional one reusable bag for a dollar, it's probably going to be cheaper than the time and effort and gas you're going to spend to drive to another municipality. But I think to your point overall, we do want to see synthesized regulation. So we do want to see this implemented. And so I, I would welcome the federal program. Are you hearing much from people as far as our Vancouver residents reaching out to you or responding to this? Um, I haven't had any direct outreach uh, through email. It's interesting to monitor social media. um, And I hear some people complaining about the fees and, you know, the city is taking in yet another tax. So that's one kind of misunderstanding I'd like to clear up right now is that the businesses are actually keeping the fees up in the cups and shopping bags. There's no revenue going back to the city of Vancouver. And the intent there is that it allows businesses to come up and put the effort and um, the cost and time into alternatives like having reusable cup programs at um, your coffee shop. So when you do stay in and you can have a reusable cup. Um, And that's one reason that I support this approach more because I think sometimes we implement bylaws that really put the burden on the small business without the resources to do it. And so I think this is a better approach. Is there going to be enforcement then with these minimum prices put on things like a cup or a, a reusable bag or a paper bag? Are, are, is there, are there going to be bylaw officers or people out there enforcing that businesses do that? Yeah, I mean, right now, because it's just come into effect. So the focus has really been on education. There's a number of toolkits that are available on the city's website to do that. Um, but yes, bylaw um, can uh, sort of work, go through the enforcement route. And typically that's often done on a complaint basis when somebody raises it. Um, there's somebody that's not following the bylaw that's required and it's in place. All right, Councillor Kirby Young, thanks so much for joining us on this New Year's, uh, no, sorry, on this, what is still a stat holiday. I'm getting so confused with all of the, the weekends and the days, but thank you so much for your time today and we will talk to you again soon. No worries, you take care.
Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, it looks as though road construction through a contentious part of Surrey is going to go ahead after a court ruling. And joining me now to talk more about this is Sebastian Sajda, Force of Nature and Friends of Bear Creek Park member, uh, two of the groups that were hoping to get a victory in court to stop this construction. Sebastian, thanks so much for being with us to talk more about this. Uh, hi, Jill, of course. Uh, can you tell us a bit of the background for people that haven't been following along uh, the background and what led to this fight that uh, played out in court? Yeah, so um, the city of Surrey, sort of earlier uh, last year now, um, in February, decided it was a good idea to put a road through Bear Creek Park, trying to connect 140th Avenue and King George Boulevard, sort of bisecting the park. Um, they've tried to do this, uh, Surrey City Council, that is, in various forms since at least the 90s, and it's uh, been uh, defeated by citizens sort of standing up time and time again. Unfortunately, this time, uh, council sort of refused to listen to the citizens. They refused to sort of ask us the question of if we even wanted the road when they did the public consultation. So we were sort of left with no um, recourse other than uh, a legal challenge. And so what was the basis of your legal challenge? So the basis of the legal challenge is sort of... um, uh, refers to like the very specific dedication of the plots of land that the road is going to go over or impact, as well as um, an attempt to establish the area as being sort of a park because of the way that people use it. Um, the first um, piece of that, the, the specific uh, quality of the um, pieces of land, was sort of uh, that was we were ruled against. Um, and then it, when it comes to the uh, public trust portion of things, um, the attorney general's office actually intervened in our case and so that we didn't have standing for uh, sort of challenging that, and the uh, court agreed. So is construction going ahead, or what's happening with that piece of land right now? So right now, uh, I'm not aware of any construction that's going on at this very moment. Um, the city of Surrey did put out a press release uh, late last week saying that they would commence immediately, um, but as far as I'm aware, there isn't construction at the this, at this second. Uh, you mentioned that this is something that's been going on for years. I think it even goes back maybe even further uh, to the 1980s. This has been a, a pretty controversial idea. What do you think it is about this particular council or the reason or why it's gotten to the point where it looks as though it's going to be going ahead now? Um, I think we've seen at this council sort of time and time again that they, they just aren't listening to the citizens of Surrey. They just don't really have time for uh, public consultation or, or listening to um, sort of what people want, uh, as well as they have a, a tough time defending their actions. I mean, we see this with the police transition. We see it with uh, the, the defeat of uh, Unity's Harmony housing project uh, earlier in the year as well. Um, it's just sort of a, you know, my way or the highway approach. And I know your group and many people are opposed to this, but there there must be some residents who are looking at this and looking at the growth in Surrey and suggesting that maybe this is a needed project. Yeah, so I mean, I can definitely see that there, there are two sides to this. Um, and, you know, the way that we make a decision sort of shows our values. Um, I can tell you from talking to people in the park, as well as canvassing the entire area around the park, that there's, a, you know, a, a minuscule amount who um, are in support of it. Um, it would have been great if the city had just gone through with a referendum or an alternative approval process for this, because then we would know if people wanted it or not. As it stands, it seems like, uh, you know, we, we have a petition of about 8,000 people. The city of our safe Surrey coalition, rather, was able to submit a petition of about 500 people who wanted the, the road. So, um, you know, it would be great if they could ask the citizens of Surrey. And I guess uh, they just weren't willing to do that. What are your main concerns about this? I mean, I get that it's it's taking away green space for a road, but is it that particular portion of the park as well? Or what are the main concerns about this road going ahead? 
So in terms of the environmental impact, I think that the two key parts are the uh, water courses it crosses and the green infrastructure network. So with the water courses, it crosses both uh, King Creek and Bear Creek. And with um, King Creek, they actually put in a temporary culvert. Um, sort of around the world, we're seeing municipalities daylight their creeks as opposed to covering them with culverts. You know, a metal pipe that shoots a salmon through it uh, isn't exactly their natural habitat, and it's, uh, you know, devastating to um, salmon runs. And then the, the other aspect here is the green infrastructure network. So this is sort of the network of green spaces across Surrey, and that connects into sort of neighboring green spaces um, that allows sort of uh, animals to flow through and, and the nature to thrive, right? So this is going to sever one of these major important connections as well as impact those two creeks. Uh, you mentioned that statement that was put out uh, put out on December 31st. It says the city of Surrey will be immediately proceeding on building the 84th Avenue extension following the B.C. Supreme Court decision. Uh, you mentioned that you haven't seen any construction go ahead. Are you are you worried that it's going to start imminently or, or what happens at this point then? Yeah, so we're, we're all definitely worried um, about the construction. Um, you know, if it's going to be going ahead, we want to make sure that they're sort of crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's when it comes to environmental regulation. Um, and we do have some ongoing concerns. I mentioned that culvert. Um, and then there's also sort of the uh, birding season starting in February. Uh, in Burnaby, we saw, you know, TMX actually halted by a uh, hummingbird's nest for, for several months. And, uh, you know, a similar situation might end up playing out here. Uh, the mayor also go, goes on to, uh, in that statement as well, references the fact that this has been an issue for several years, uh, that it's gone on for, I think he calls it, uh, more than the past two decades. Uh, he referenced saying that, uh, and this is a direct quote from the statement, saying, over that time, countless accidents, injuries, and even fatalities have occurred because of a complete lack of leadership. What do you say to that, that the, the mayor is saying that without this project or because this project hasn't gone ahead, it's created that dangerous situation? So um, this was their sort of their position um, early on, and they, they tried to use um, sort of numbers from the intersection at 88th and King George Boulevard to um, justify that position. Um, claiming it was the most dangerous uh, intersection in Surrey. Um, this just ended up not being true when you look at the facts. Um, anybody can just sort of Google now and you'll see that it, it doesn't end up uh, in top one for Surrey and not even, you know, top 10 for, for BC or anything like that or, or Metro Vancouver. Um, what ended up happening is you know, they really manipulated these statistics. They they go back to a 10-year time span for, for um, accidents. And then they also end up conflating ICBC reported accidents and RCMP attended accidents. So ICBC uh, sort of counts every accident that's even a minor fender bender. The RCMP only um, attends major accidents. So they're calling every fender bender a major accident sort of in their um, information they put out there. And it's just, it's just really dishonest. Um, it's especially dishonest because five years ago, that intersection got major safety improvements. And there actually are additional safety improvements that were scheduled for the intersection that would have made a big difference. And if you look at that uh, as a top five, as a, sorry, in the last five years, we see that it's really like the 13th most dangerous intersection in Surrey. Certainly, we want to reduce all accidents. Um, and the uh, city of Surrey's um, Vision Zero strategy is like one to be commended, but it should actually be followed. And that means um, getting a protected left turn signal at that 88th and King George Boulevard. Um, intersection. Uh, I know the court didn't rule the way that you were hoping. What does what does your group do next? So, um, as I mentioned, we're going to be uh, monitoring all those environmental issues to make sure that the city isn't doing uh, more harm than they're already doing. But there's also some sort of issues about um, informing people. I don't think people realize the true cost of this project yet. I think that the estimates started at about twelve million, and they've sort of steadily risen. Right now, the city isn't being public about the eventual cost. 
that raising all the hydro towers in the area is going to be probably about like a million per tower might end up costing about eight or nine million more uh, for this project. This might be the most expensive uh, sort of four blocks of road the city ever builds. Well, we will continue uh, to watch and see what happens next. But Sebastian, thanks for taking the time and for joining us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for covering this deal. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, there are some more restrictions that have been reintroduced for long-term care. This, as we deal with the Omicron variant and see transmission becoming a lot easier in many cases. So what does that mean for families and for patients and for staff at long-term care facilities? Well, Dan Levitt is joining us now. He is the CEO at Kin Village. Dan, thank you so much for being with us again. Great to be here, Jill. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, So what exactly are the rules when we're talking about essential visitors? Who can visit loved ones right now in long-term care? So essentially there's five um, new changes that are being introduced um, in this part of January. So essentially the essential visitors is the big one. um, And um, it's only long-term care, so it doesn't affect assisted living. And it's effective January 1. And only those essential visitors are allowed to visit their loved one uh, living in long-term care. And uh, that came into effect on January 1st. The other changes that we're seeing is around... um, self-isolation for people who test positive in terms of um, staff, and that's for five days, um, which is uh, two days less than previously. And we're also introducing uh, point-of-care rapid testing for staff um, and for visitors, including those essential visitors. That's going to be starting um, in the next week or so. And uh, we've also updated how we're responding to outbreaks. Uh, We have some new guidelines around that. And the other change that we um, are seeing is um, until the end of this year, the single site order will continue. That's where um, you can only work in one site or in a cluster of sites um, in in one area. So there are some significant changes that are impacting long-term care now. All right, let's start then with the essential visitor uh, designation, because I'm hearing from some family members that if you don't have uh, designation as an essential visitor, it can be a bit time-consuming to do that. What is the process for somebody to become an essential visitor? So essentially, um, that person would identify themselves um, to the care home as um, being the essential visitor for that particular resident. And there is a process where um, they have to demonstrate that they have been properly vaccinated. Um, by next week, um, we'll be introducing the point of care, t- um, sorry, uh, point of entry testing for all visitors. So they'd have to be able to um, pass that as well. And they have to, while they're visiting their loved one, they have to wear a mask at all times. So that, those are really the three main criteria that they have to meet in order to be an essential visitor uh, for a loved one. And, of, of course, the person in care um, has the option of declining that, that visitor if they choose to. Right. So is it time consuming, though, if somebody, say, is because back when we had the one designated essential visitor, if a family has one person that's designated, but say other family members have been visiting, but without the designation, how long would it take for somebody else to then get that designation? It shouldn't take very long. Um, we we want to see um, caregivers. We want to see family members who have um, an important uh, part in that person's life. We want to see them continue, just like we do when you're not living in a care home. It's so important to have that family contact. So we do want to make sure that we have as many um, visitors uh, uh, for an individual living in care. And it doesn't have to be one, but we want to make sure everyone does have at least one. And, and uh, all they have to do is identify themselves at the care home and go through that process. And um, once they comply with those uh, measurements, 
of uh, having the vaccination, doing the rapid testing and confirming that they will wear um, a mask at all times while they're in the care home and then they're able to visit. And is there a maximum number of how many essential visitors one person can have? There's no maximum, um, but it's really critical that if you know somebody in care, especially if you're related to them, um, that this is the time now to come forward and uh, spend time with them. It's going to be a a tough go in the next few months, and uh, um, we really want to see people um, not being isolated, and we know how damaging that can be on somebody living in care when they don't have visitors, um, especially now um, with um, it being winter and um, it's often a, a tough time for many of us um, in January. And with these, um, these short day, day, uh, daylight hours, we want to see people really their spirits being lifted up. So we really are encouraging people to visit their loved ones in care. All right. You mentioned the, the point of entry, rapid testing. So is that going to be when that comes in, is, if that's coming in in the next week or so, is that going to be for everybody who sets foot in a long-term care facility or would it be more random? Yeah, so it's going to be um, everybody who, who is entering um, care. So we'll be, for example, we'll be testing um, every two days, a maximum of three times a day, we'll be testing essential visitors. Um, we'll be testing um, staff as well on a regular basis, and uh, especially those staff members who have potentially been exposed to another staff member, um, we'll be testing them um, more frequently. So it's something that we will be uh, commonplace now in care homes to enter to be tested um, as you enter. And are residents being tested as well or only tested if they have symptoms? So we're testing mainly if they have symptoms or if they've been exposed. Uh, So we're not um, subjecting them to those tests all the time, but we are taking um, a different approach with this particular strand um, of uh, the virus than we have in in others. Um, We know that it's much um, more spread um, with lesser symptoms, so the chance of an outbreak we call it we call it enhanced um, measures when enhanced monitoring when we have a suspect of a, of a potential outbreak. So we are definitely testing people in clusters who might have been exposed, um, but if they have not been exposed and there's no cases in that neighborhood, they're generally fine. And we know as well the rapid tests. While they're a good tool, they can there have been cases where they haven't caught the virus, or where you might get a negative test, but you may in fact still be infected. I think especially with the Omicron variant, there there's some finding that maybe they're not as reliable as they have been. So is that why there's also going to be still the requirement of wearing masks or wearing PPE when visiting? Yeah, exactly. So we know that it's really just a screening tool. It's not really a a diagnosis tool. Um, There's still further testing required afterwards. Um, That's why we do want to put that extra layer of wearing a mask um, at all times when we're in the building. And, um, you know, it it includes for staff as well, staff um, who are um, spending time together in staff rooms, for example. We want to see them um, wearing masks um, as long as they're when they're not eating. And uh, we're trying to limit um, the spread by, by doing those things that we've always done, the hand washing, um, being physically distant, and just making sure that we're doing everything we can to you know, uh, make it a normal life as possible in nursing homes. Uh, you mentioned as well the guidelines when it comes to outbreaks and the guidelines that have changed as far as isolating once you've been, uh, if you've tested positive specifically, or more so I would imagine for staff members. How do you see that changing things? Well, it's going to change things in the sense that, you know, previously before this particular variant, um, it, 
we kind of had um, a bit of a norm going through long-term care. We were sort of used to how things were going. And now with this rapid um, increase, we're going to see, because of the community spread, we're going to see much more cases in long-term care. And so um, we're expecting more cases, and we're already seeing that in long-term care with the number of outbreaks that have been um, declared just in the past week. So um, we're really scaling it to meet the demand. And uh, we know, luckily, there's less severe illness, um, but we now have those those tools, the guidance, the expertise, um, after almost two years of experience. And uh, the health authorities have been very supportive in providing that guidance to us. But we are going to see um, it's going to be different. So we're going to see more cohorting, for example, of, of residents. Um, things like um, not dining together. Um, if, every, if you have those, those large dining rooms and care homes, you won't see um, everyone together probably stagger meals and try not to... Um, um, move staff between um, areas where we can if there's areas or at the ability to manage staff from one one uh, neighborhood to the next they won't be going back and forth um, those kinds of measures are probably the best tools we have right now to um, to manage this um, current uh, variation of of the virus and we're hoping and praying that this is the last one and that uh, things will be back to normal when springtime comes around uh, do you think that, that we've learned, and I think everybody has that hope as well, but if we go back to when we saw so many homes locked down, we saw people not having visits uh, or trying to have visits through things like iPads and that, do, did we learn from that that while, yes, we were trying to keep everybody safe, but there, there was that question of quality of life and what's, what's the point in some scenarios if you're just going to be miserable and, and have really no quality of life? Have we learned from that, do you think? And that's what got, has gotten us to this point? Yeah, we definitely learned from it because we're not excluding visitors right now. In the past, we did exclude them altogether. Now we have um, some comfort knowing that if people have been vaccinated, um, if they pass the, uh, the point of, of um, entry test, and if they wear their mask the whole time, we know that that's an essential piece of, of the visitation. And just like we have it in our own homes, this is the, the resident's home, Jill. It's a really good question you, you raise. Um, people have a right to visit with their family members and their, their close friends. So um, just like we extend those freedoms to people living in the community, we should have those same freedoms when you're living in long-term care. And it's so important um, to the the happiness and just the quality of life. And you're right. Um, what is the point if you can't spend time with, with your loved ones, especially um, at the end of life? We all want to um, ha- have uh, enjoyment um, all through life and especially when you're living in long-term care, you don't want all your people that you're visiting, as wonderful as we are as staff members. Um, there's, it's different when you have family members and friends around uh, because it's a different kind of relationship. So it's critical. So I believe we have learned something. And, you know, I'm applauding um, the decision from public health to make sure fa- that family members are essential and that they're not excluded because often they are the main caregiver um, before the person moves in. And uh, it's so important to maintain that contact. Are the rules changing at all for uh, for people that can? Are, are are residents able to go out with their essential visitors if somebody comes and wants to take somebody to a restaurant or take somebody out for the day? Is that still happening? My understanding is that's still uh, permissible to uh, to leave the buildings. Um, it it doesn't again make sense to have people, if you will, locked down um, when they're when they're. Um, not uh, positive with the virus, uh, just like as the rest of us have the ability when we're negative to enjoy the freedoms that we all have, um, that those same freedoms should be extended to people living in care and be able to socialize. And of course, we do expect them 
and the family members or wherever they're going to um, to be safe when they're out, just like we would um, ourselves. So we're not bringing um, the virus back to our own homes and spreading to vulnerable people. And Dan, just one other question, because we are still seeing, and I think even today uh, we saw another uh, uh, notice from a healthcare authority from Fraser Health, I believe, uh, saying again, there, there are some new outbreaks. And you mentioned that these are going to be some difficult months, even with all of these measures. Do you think that we should be bracing for the fact there are going to be outbreaks, there is going to be a transmission of this virus in long-term care? Absolutely. And just looking at now kind of the dashboard of those um, homes that were declared an outbreak um, December 29th, December 30th, December 31st, and that probably hasn't been updated um, the past couple of days. And so I would expect tomorrow we'll see more more care homes um, added to the list. And so, yeah, we should be bracing for that and expecting it. And uh, I guess the encouraging thing is for all the listeners is that um, this particular variant is not as potent as the previous ones. Um, it is faster spreading. It is in the community. We're better equipped now than we were uh, two years ago. And yes, I think we should be expecting um, many care homes to be um, impacted. And uh, we're going to hope and pray that the, um, the damage, if you will, is um, not as severe as it has been in the past. All right, Dan Levitt, we'll leave it there for today. As always, thanks so much for your time and for joining us. Of course, Jill, anytime. Well, have you thought about a fitness program for the year 2022? And if so, have you also perhaps come up with excuses? Oh, the gyms are closed. I'll get into it next month. There'll be time later. It's never going to work. If so, fear not. A lot of people have those uh, excuses or those ideas in their minds. How do you overcome that, though? Well, joining us now... It's Professor Scott Lear with the Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at the SFU Department of Health Sciences. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Joe. Thanks a lot for having me on. It seems like every year this is a bit of an issue. People want to start a new exercise program or start a, a have a healthy start to the year, made even more difficult with the ongoing pandemic. So how do you even suggest people get started in a way that they can kind of get on that path to success? Yeah, even at the best of times, it, it, it can be challenging, as, as you mentioned. And now with a lot of gyms, fitness centers and other things closed down, what people would usually gravitate to to be active is not available. So we have to start thinking in, in other ways. Uh, the swimming pools are, are still open for those people who, who want to do things like uh, swimming or water aerobics, things like that. There are You can turn your home into some exercise room just putting on a YouTube video or some dancers do streaming through Instagram as well as aerobic classes and stuff. You have to be a bit more creative and, and imaginative. And now with, with the snow, you know, snowshoeing, skiing, cross-country skiing, if you have kids, taking them tobogganing, that can be a workout walking up that hill with those kids. That's a, a good one as well and fun for everybody. Uh, if you're just starting out, say you maybe you exercised before, it tapered off, or you just haven't been all that active, what would be a reasonable amount or a goal to set to, to, to get started? Yeah, for somebody who's, who's not active at all um, in terms of doing any type of activity specifically for, for exercise, I would suggest, like, well, the recommendations suggest 20 to 30 minutes um, on most days, so about 150 minutes per week. So that would be like half an hour, five days a week. So starting off with something like 20, 
to 30 minutes at a session uh, a few times a week, kind of keeping it realistic, but also like somewhat challenging. If it's, if it's too easy, then that's also not going to be much motivation for, for people. And that can just be walking around the neighborhood and, and that would be fine. Uh, you mentioned as well uh, people uh, that you might stream a, a class or, or some kind of exercise event. How is it different mentally, though, that idea of getting out of your house and going to a gym or going to uh, another place to do your exercise rather than bringing it into, say, your living room or a second bedroom? Yeah, there there is definitely uh, a difference. And there are pluses and minuses depending on each person's personality. Uh, if you want social interaction, it might be um, doing uh, streaming a pre-recorded video may not be for you, but there are um, live classes. Like my wife has been doing online Zuma, Zumba classes for um, weekly for, for a long time, and, and that's live, so there is some communication. It's not the, the exact same. Uh, conversely, there's people who are, are quite fine exercising on their own. I would say that trying to think of the, the type of program that's going to work for any individual is the one that works for them, the one that they think they'll enjoy and making specific for them. Not everybody has to go to the swimming pool. Not everybody has to go snowshoeing. But something like walking with a friend, if you bring somebody in, there's the social contact and accountability. And how do you suggest people get over the fact that you can have all the best intentions and you can even put a schedule down and say, I'm going to do this and uh, here's, here's the plan. But it's really easy to lose that motivation and to then a few weeks later, you find that you're not following it. Yeah. And so some of the times that depends on what your original motivation is for. So for a lot of people who set resolutions, whether it's exercise, they want to save more for a trip or something like that. Um, most people by the time February's come have fallen off the wagon. And some of that's because that goal that they made wasn't either specific enough. People might say, I want to exercise, but what does that mean? Or I want to save more money. What does that mean? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? And so the more specific you get, and especially meaningful to yourself, because if you're if somebody's setting a resolution because of this is kind of the culture that we do every January, first we set new resolutions that's probably not going to last as long as if it's something that you you really want to do and then you can do those things like writing it down booking it into your calendar as you suggested making it a priority the other thing too is the motivation is good to set set the goal we need that motivation to set that goal but really the day-to-day stuff is about discipline there's plenty of mornings like especially this time of year i wake up and it's still dark at like seven o'clock seven thirty and i'm like touching myself to go to the swimming pool and it, you know it could still be dark by the time I, I finish as well and i wouldn't say i'm necessarily motivated but i know at the end i'll just feel so much better for, for having done that exercise session And is that where it kind of comes in as well, the idea of rewards? Not that you want to reward yourself, uh, say, with chocolate cake every time you exercise, but does setting rewards and goals and that help out as well? Yeah, definitely. So when you mentioned about the the chocolate cake, that's kind of what we call an external reward. And those things might help get that activity started. But in the long run, you want to 
do any type of activity because of how it makes you feel. And that goes for, for anything. It's not just exercise. And so that becomes an internal reward. And that will, is something that will keep the person going. We're, we're a bit of like instant gratification. And so exercise is great. Is that, you know, nobody ever has regretted exercising after the fact. Majority of people feel pretty good after. Like I exercise, I, I know that it will keep me healthy, but I do it because I actually enjoy doing it. And those are the types of things setting it up. That's why it's important to make that personal and meaningful to yourself. Right. And, th- and that makes a lot of sense. Like for myself, I don't like swimming in pools, but I love swimming in the ocean. So it's getting exercise doing that rather than doing something that I know I'm not going to like. Yes. Yeah. And I've asked a lot of times, what's the best exercise somebody can do? And the best one is what you will do, what an individual will do. Not what I say, you know, swimming is great exercise, but if you can't swim, it's not so great. <laughs> How long does it take to really to make the habit? I know there there have been the that thought process of thirty days to make or break a habit. Once you're in a program or in a routine, if you hit a certain time mark, does that make it more likely that you'll continue with it? Yeah, definitely. The longer the the longer um, you're practicing that routine, the more successful. And, and you know, there's not really like a hard and fast rule when it comes to. There's been a lot more study in terms of people who quit smoking, and it tends to be that once people have quit smoking for about six months, it's kind of like uh, a, a bit easier to continue on. It's those first few weeks or months where we might, what we call relapse or something might, might happen. It's, you know, you want to forgive yourself. If you're not 100% adherent to that, don't beat, beat yourself up. But at the same time, you know, if you're just got your running shoes on, you're going for a walk and and, you know, a friend phone said, hey, you want to go get some pizza or something. That's where you kind of decide. You go for the walk or do you go for the the pizza? You know, sometimes going out with your friend is going to be beneficial. But you also have to plan and and expect that there might be some things that kind of might uh, knock you off uh, the rails at some point. And one other thing, do you find at this time of year, do people go a little bit too much, uh, have too much gusto and then run the risk of being injured? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I wouldn't say um, injury is definitely a concern. When you're saying too much gusto, I would think, you know, going too too much too soon, um, maybe feeling uncomfortable and maybe that they're not um, as energized to keep going or they have unrealistic goals. Like I want to lose 10 pounds in two weeks, which is um, not a a realistic or or safe thing uh, for people to do. So you've got to live within that range of realistic expectations. Otherwise it is hard to succeed through those first few months. All right. Good advice as we uh, sit here on January 3rd. Professor Lear, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot, Joe.
Well, we have been talking a bit about the weather and certainly about the hazards on the mountains. We just talked with North Shore Rescue about a rescue that's taking place near Cypress Bowl. Uh, one individual with a badly broken leg after an avalanche in that part of the mountain range. But in Metro Vancouver and other parts of the area, there are also a lot of hazards, not only for humans, but also for animals, particularly dogs. And when we talk about a lot of the frozen ponds and lakes and rivers, that too can be a hazard. So joining us to talk more about this is Lauren Adelman, veterinarian at Canada West Veterinary Specialists. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. I'm excited to be here, as always. Have you been having cases of animals that have been injured this way or cases where you've had to attend after this? Yeah, so definitely with the cold weather, we always see spikes in our emergency room visits at any emergency clinic. Um, And, you know, the big things are going to be when it's icy and snowy on the ground, pets, just like people, are prone to injuries. So, you know, broken bones from slipping on the ice, paw pad injuries, even hypothermia. And in really severe cases, like you mentioned, when we have these frozen bodies of water, I mean, dogs can fall in when we don't know the thickness of ice just the same as humans can. Are they drawn to those bodies of water? I know there have been issues with if you mistakenly throw something or or they see something that they chase and go on the ice, but are they also kind of naturally drawn to those areas? Yeah, I think just like just like we are, you know, you see these these fun snow ice covered areas and it's a fun place to play. So, you know, I, I do think they are and a lot of a lot of people don't realize, okay, I'm gonna throw, you know, my chuck it ball onto this area that might be iced over, but if we don't really know how thick it is, and dogs can be quite heavy. I know some of my patients weigh more than me, so sometimes, you know, we don't realize the risks that those uh, frozen bodies of water play. And is it different as well? Obviously, you don't want your dog going through the ice or falling through no matter what, but is it different depending on the breed, given that labs are kind of bred to be in super cold water, whereas smaller dogs wouldn't be? Does that come into play? A hundred percent. I mean, different factors, like you mentioned, breeds, like different breeds have different thickness of their skin and of their coats, you know, coat varieties. The, you know, my little chihuahua does not have the same coat as an Alaskan Malamute. Um, Their fat stores, their overall health, you know, dogs that exercise frequently are going to be more likely to tolerate those cold environments. And also just, you know, individuals. I know I have two small dogs. One of them, he loves going out and digging his head in the snow and the other one like goes out with his leg keys and his back inside. <laughs> so, you know, I think also personalities, just like with people. <laughs> Do dogs need, uh, I'm, and I'm guilty of this, but mainly because I think it looks cute. I put clothes on my smaller dog. Do they need that extra layer in this weather or is that just being ridiculous? No, it's not being ridiculous at all. It is cute. It is fashion. I love it. But it's also necessary. I mean, I think it's a huge misconception that people have. Oh, my dog's basically wearing a fur coat. It'll be fine. And the reality is, yes, some some breeds of dogs, you know, the, the northern breeds of dogs, the dogs that are meant to be outside dogs may be fine. But the majority of dogs would benefit from layers, you know, coats and booties. A lot of them, especially our dogs in BC, they really are not used to the snow. They don't have that paw pad that builds up. And so booties to protect them are really important as well.
I'm glad you mentioned that because that can be uh, problematic getting dogs to wear the booties. So, But if you do know that your dog's been out and, say, walking on a sidewalk that's been freshly salted, what do you need to do or to make sure that, that it doesn't burn their paws or that their paws are okay? Yeah, and some of those de-icing or salting, you know, they can they can have really corrosive materials. So the first thing you can do is try, if you're on your own personal property, using non-corrosive or pet-friendly products. Um, obviously you can't control what's out there though. And so things like there's paw bombs that you can get to help protect them before you even go outside, almost like a Vaseline. And then the big thing you want to make sure is when you come back inside, if they haven't been wearing booties, because yes, I know I, one of my dogs, I tried to put them on and he looked like he was marching. Um, but if they're outside and they're being exposed to that, just wash their paws when they come in, you know, whether it's a washcloth or just kind of, um, you know, using the sink, um, just make sure you get all that salt and chemical off so it doesn't irritate them. What about other types of liquids as well? I know that in the past, I don't know if this has changed, but I know in the past, wasn't it that antifreeze has that sweet flavor that that dogs in particular are drawn to? Yeah, and cats as well, to be honest, because cats really like to, especially outdoor cats, like to hide in, you know, the warm engine areas of cars. And yeah, it's absolutely still a problem. Antifreeze, the main ingredient in most antifreeze is ethylene glycol, and it has a very sweet flavor. And so animals are drawn to it. And unfortunately, it is deadly. It can cause significant kidney failure, which can be irreversible if treated too late. And so, yes, you want to keep your dogs and cats away from antifreeze. And if you are yourself using antifreeze chemicals, try and look for products that are animal safe. So ones that contain propylene glycol are going to be a better alternative than the ones that contain ethylene glycol. All right. Uh, I know whenever we talk about in the summer, the the opposite, when animals can get too hot and uh, the process of cooling them down has to be very careful as well. Is it similar then if uh, a dog that maybe is hypothermic or has become too cold, is there a specific process then as far as warming a dog up? Well, I think that if you're concerned, like if the dog is clinically showing signs of hypothermia, the best thing you're going to be able to do is take them to a veterinarian where we have, you know, better means of providing warming support, um, like circulating air blankets, things like that. In your home, you know, obviously if you go for a walk and you just think your dog's maybe a bit cold, just trying to use layers like blankets. I definitely would not apply, you know, heating pads directly to your dog. Those can cause burns to their skin. So the best thing for mild cases would just be, you know, common sense, getting them snuggled up in the blanket on the couch, making sure that they are coming back to room temperature there using some, you know, some making sure your temperature in your house is warm enough. And how long should dogs, and again, I'm guessing this would be breed specific as well, but dogs that love the snow and love being out there running around, is there a time period that you should be aware of that even if your dog appears to be having a great time, should you limit the amount of time they're spending outside in these colder temperatures? And you're right. I think that really depends on the breed of the dog, their activity, their health. You know, geriatric dogs with arthritis really shouldn't be outside except for short walks. I mean, if your dog is the type of dog that does well in the cold and doesn't seem to mind it and wants to play, you know, I would let them have fun, maybe limit it less so than you would during an otherwise temperate day, just like we would in the summer in the heat. But otherwise, you know, for your other pets who may not be as keen to go outside, short leash walks or just, you know, a quick pee outside seems reasonable, but always err on the side of caution. You know, it's better to do more frequent 
short bits of playing outside rather than a really extended long one, you know, because dogs don't really know their own limits, unfortunately. (laughs) Exactly. Should you be looking for specific things, the signs that something's not right? I mean, I think if they're outside, you know, if your dog starts acting, starts shivering, starts looking like they want to turn around, maybe not doesn't want to play anymore. Um, those are all, you know, your classic signs. If your dog's pulling the leash still, wants to go for the walk, seems interested, then just follow their follow their tune. Essentially, I always say, you know, let your dog set their own pace. And so, you know, one of my dogs, my dog Joey could care less about going for walks. We literally haven't walked him for a week. He just goes out into the yard and pees. My other dog goes for short leash walks around the block, but he's tiny. And so I don't want to keep him out for too long because I don't want to risk him getting cold. And I I know I asked you this right off the top, but do you tend to see an increase then? I guess not just with dogs that have fallen through ice, but, but I get the impression that there would be a bit of a spike as far as dogs that need, or other pets as well, that need treatment because of the cold weather, especially now we're not used to, I mean, it's raining now, the snow is almost gone, but we're certainly not used to that prolonged below zero temperature in in Vancouver or Metro Vancouver with the snow sticking around. Oh, yeah. I mean, it spikes in not just, you know, dogs, you know, falling on ice or going into the water. Broken bones are super common this time of year from slipping. Um, We see hypothermia. We see a lot of paw pad injuries in the snow. Uh, Frostbite, definitely see that as well, you know, especially their, their peripheral, their extremities, like their ear tips. So all of those things really increase. And in general, you know, the extreme heat and the extreme cold, even in an animal that doesn't have cold-related injuries, it can exacerbate something that might be already going on, that those type of extreme conditions maybe just make those issues come to the surface. And so other health, you know, systemic health disorders as well. Right. Yeah, we don't think about frostbite so much here. But again, I guess that is something that people need to be aware of right now. Oh, yeah, especially if they're, you know, pretty much during these types of cold weather conditions, most animals should be kept inside. And so we definitely see that, you know, for cats that are outdoor cats, um, dogs that are kept outside. And so if, if possible, it's best to keep animals inside this time of year. All right. Well, thanks so much, Lauren Adelman. Thank you for the, the tips and the reminder as far as keeping everybody, all members of the family, safe this time of year. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Absolutely. It was good chatting.